Alright, now that you've kind of digested the prosecution, it's time for the defense. So, I ain't gonna talk much. I'm just gonna start reading. Chapter 19, To Kill a Mockingbird, by Harper Lee. Thomas Robinson wrenched around, ran his fingers under his left arm and lifted it. He guided his arm to the Bible, and his rubber-like left hand sought contact with the black binding. As he raised his right hand, the useless one slipped off the Bible and hit the clerk's table. He was trying again when Judge Taylor growled, That'll do, Tom. Tom took the oath and stepped into the witness chair. Atticus very quickly introduced him to tell us. Tom was 25 years of age. He was married with three children. He had never been in trouble with the law before. He once received 30 days for disorderly conduct, though. It must have been disorderly, said Atticus. What did it consist of? Got into a fight with another man. He tried to cut me. Did it succeed? Yes, sir. A little. Not enough to hurt. You see, I... Tom moved his left shoulder. Yes, said Atticus. Were you, were you both convicted? Yes, sir. I had to serve because I couldn't pay the fine. The other fella paid in his. Dill leaned across me and asked Jim what Atticus was doing. Jim said Atticus was showing the jury that Tom had nothing to hide. Were you acquainted with Miss Mayella Violet Ewell? Asked Atticus. Yes, I had to pass her place going to and from the field every day. Who's field? I picks for Mr. Link Diaz. Were you picking cotton in November? No, sir. I works in his yard fall and winter time. I works pretty steady for him all year round. He's got a lot of pecan trees and things. You say you have to pass the Ewell's place to get to and from work. Is there another way to go? No, sir. None that I know of. Tom, did she ever speak to you? Why, yes, sir. I tip my hat and I go by, and one day she asked me to come inside the fence and bust up a kiffer robe for her. When did she ask you to chop up the kiffer robe? Mr. Finch, it was way last spring. I remember it because it was chopping time and I had my hoe with me. I said I didn't have nothing but this hoe, but she said she had a hatchet. She gave me the hatchet and I broke up that chicka robe. She said, I reckon I'll have to give you a nickel, won't I? And I said, no ma'am, there ain't no charge. And I went home. Mr. Finch, that was way last spring, over a year ago. Did you ever go over to the place again? Yes, sir. When? Well, last times. 
Judge Taylor instinctively reached for his gavel, but his hand fell. The murmur below us died down without his help. Under what circumstances? Please, sir? Why did you go inside the fence lots of times? Tom Robinson's forehead relaxed. She called me in, sir. Seemed like every time I pass yonder, she has a little something for me to do. Chopping, kindling, toting. She watered them red flowers every day. Were you paid for your services? No, sir. Not after she offered me a nickel the first time. I was glad to do it. Mr. Ewell didn't seem to help with her none, and neither did the children. I know she didn't have no nickels to spare. Where were the other children? They always around, all over the place. They'd watch me work. Some of them, some of them sit by the window. Would Miss Mayella watch, talk to you? Yes, sir, she talked to me. As Tom Robinson gave his testimony, it came to me that Mayella Ewell must have been the loneliest person in the world. She was even lonelier than Boo Radley, who had not been out of the house in 25 years. When Atticus asked if she had any friends, she didn't seem to know what she, he even meant. And then she thought he was making fun of her. She was sad, I thought, as Jim called a mixed child. White, white people wouldn't have anything to do with her because she lived among pigs, and Negroes wouldn't have anything to do with her because she was white. She couldn't live like Mr. Dolphus Raymond, who preferred the company of Negroes because she didn't over in Riverbank, and she wasn't from a fine old family. Nobody said, that's just her way about the Ewells. Maycob gave them Christmas baskets and welfare money and back in the back of its hand. Tom Robinson was probably the only person who ever was decent to her. But she, she said he took advantage of her and she stood up, looked at him as if he were dirt beneath her feet. Did you ever... Atticus interrupted my meditations. At any time, go to the Ewell property. Did you ever set foot on Ewell property without an express invitation from one of them? No, sir, Mr. Finch. I never did. I wouldn't do that, sir. Atticus sometimes said that one's way to tell whether a witness is lying or telling the truth was to listen rather than to watch. I applied his test. Tom denied it three times in one breath, but quietly, with no hint of whining in his voice, I found myself believing him in spite of his protesting too much. He seemed to be a respectable Negro, and a respectable Negro would never go up into somebody's yard of his own volition. Tom, what happened to you on the evening of November 21st last year? Below us, the spectators drew a collective breath and leaned forward. Behind us, the Negroes did the same thing. Tom was a velvet black Negro, not shiny, but soft black velvet, 
the whites of his eyes shone in his face and he when he spoke we saw flashes of his teeth if he had been whole he would have been a fine specimen of a man mr finch he said I was going home as usual that evening, and I passed by the evil's place. Miss Mayell is on the porch, like she said she were, and it seemed real quiet like, and I didn't quite know why. I was studying why, just passing by, when she says for me to come in there and help her for a minute. Well, I went inside the fence and looked around for some kindling to work on, but I didn't see none. She says, nah. I got something for you to do in the house. The old door is off the hinges and and falls keep coming on pretty fast. I say, you got a screwdriver, Miss Mayella? She said, sure had. Well, I went up steps and she motioned me inside to come. I went inside the front room and looked at the door. It's, I said, Miss Mayella, this door look all right. I pulled back and forth, and the hinges seemed all right. Then she shut the door in my face. Mr. Finch, I was wondering why it was so quiet like, and she, it came to me that there weren't a child on the place, not one of them. And when I said, Miss Mayella, where are the children? Tom, Tom's black velvet skin had begun to shine. He ran his hand over his face. I said, where the children? He continued. And she says, she was laughing sort of. She says, they all gone down to get town to get ice creams. She says, took, took me by a slap ear to save them up nickels, but I got it done. They all gone down to town. Tom's discomfort was not from the humidity. What did you say then, Tom? asked Atticus. I said something like, Why, Miss Mayella, that's right smart of you treat him. And she said, You think so? I don't think she understood what I was thinking. I meant it was smart of her to save like that and nice of her to treat him. I understand you, Tom. Go on, said Atticus. Well, I said I'd best be going. I couldn't find nothing for her, and she said, oh, yes, I could. I could ask her what, and she said to just step on that chair yonder, get in that box down from the from the top of the chiffero. Not the same chiffero you busted up, asked Atticus. The witness smiled. Nah, sir, another one. Most as tall as the room, so I done what she told me. And I was just reaching when the next thing I know she had grabbed me around the legs, grabbed me around the le grabbed me around the legs, Mr. Finch. She scared me so bad I hopped down, turned the chair over, and that was the only thing. Furniture. Disturbed in that room, Mr. Finch. When I left it, I swear for God. What happened after you turned the chair over? Tom Robinson had come to a dead stop. He glanced at Atticus and then at the jury and then at Mr. Underwood sitting across the room. Tom, you're sworn to tell the truth, the whole truth. Will you tell it? Tom ran his hand nervously over his mouth. 
what happened then? Answer the question, said Judge Taylor. One third of his cigar had vanished. Mr. Finch, I got down off that chair and turned around and she sort of jumped on me. Jumped on you? Violently? No, sir. She hugged me. She hugged me round the waist. This time, Judge Taylor's gavel came down with a bang, as it did the overhead lights went on in the courtroom. Darkness had, had not come, but the afternoon sun had left the windows. Judge Taylor quickly restored order. Then what did she do? The witness swallowed hard. She reached up and kissed me on the side of the face. Said she's never kissed a grown man before, and she might as well kiss a nigger. She said what that, what her papa do to her don't count. She says kiss me back, nigger, and I say Miss Mayella, let me get out of here and try tried to run, but she got her back to the door, and I had it. I had to push her. I didn't want to harm her. Mr. Finch, and I say let me pass, but just. Just when I say it, Mr. Ewell yonder hollered through the window. What did he say? Mr. Robinson swallowed hard again, and his eyes widened. Something not fitting to say, not fitting for these folks' children cheering to hear. What did he say, Tom? You must tell the jury what he said. Tom Robinson shut his eyes tight. He says, you goddamn whore, I'll kill you. Then what happened? Mr. Finch, I was running so fast, I didn't know what happened. Tom, did you rape Mayella Ewell? I did not, sir. Did you harm her in any way? I did not, sir. Did you resist her advances? Mr. Finch, I tried. I tried to, though being ugly to her. I didn't want to be ugly. I didn't want to push her. I didn't want to do nothing. It occurred to me, in their own way, Tom Robinson's manners were as good as Atticus's. Until my father explained to me later, I did not understand the subtlety of Tom's predicament. He would have, he would not have dared strike a white woman under any circumstances and expect to live long. He took the first opportunity to run. A sure sign of guilt. Tom, go back one more to Mr. Ewell, said Atticus. Did he say anything to you? Not nothing, sir. He might have said something, but I weren't there. That'll do, Atticus cut in sharply. What did you hear? Who was he talking to? Mr. Finch, he talking, talking looking at Miss Mayella. Then you ran? I sure did, sir. Why did you run? I was scared, sir. Why were you scared? Mr. Finch, if you was a nigger like me, you'd be scared too. Atticus sat down. Mr. Gilmore was making his way to the witness stand, but before he got there, Mr. Link Diaz rose from the audience and announced, I just want the whole lot of you to know one thing right now. That boy's worked for me eight years, and he, I ain't had a speck of trouble out of him. Not one speck. Shut your mouth, sir. Judge Taylor was wide awake and roaring. 
He was also pink in the face, his speech miraculously unimpaired by his cigar. Link Diaz, he yelled, if you have anything to say, you have to say it under oath at the proper time. But until then, you get out of this room, you hear me? Get out of this room, sir. You hear me? I'll be damned if I listen to this case again. Judge Taylor looked daggers at Atticus, as if staring him to speak, daring him to speak. But Atticus had ducked his head and was laughing into his lap. I remembered something he had said about Judge Taylor's ex-catheter remarks. Something sometimes exceeding his duty, but that a few lawyers ever did anything about them. I looked at Jim, but Jim shook his head. It ain't like one of the jurymen got up and started talking, he said. I think it'll be different than Mr. Link was just disturbing the peace or something. Judge Taylor told the reporter to expunge anything he happened to be written down after Mr. Finch written down after Mr. Finch. If if you were a nigger like me, you'd be scared too, and told the jury to disregard that other interruption. He looked suspiciously down in the middle aisle and waited, I suppose, for Mr. Link Diaz to effect total departure. Then he said, Go ahead, Mr. Gilmore. You were given 30 days once for disorderly conduct, Robinson? Asked Mr. Gilmore. Yes, sir. What'd the nigger look like when you got through with him? He beat me, Mr. Gilmore. Yes, but you were convicted, weren't you? Atticus raised his head. It was a misdemeanor, and it's on the record, Judge. I thought he sounded just tired. Witness will answer, though, said Judge Taylor just as wearily. Yes, sir, I got 30 days. I knew that Mr. Gilmore would sincerely, tell, would sincerely tell the jury that anyone who was convicted of disorderly conduct could have easily in his heart take advantage of Mayella Ewell. That was the only reason he cared. Reasons like that helped. Robinson, you're pretty good at busting at busting up robes and kindling with one hand, aren't you? Yes, sir. I reckon so. Strong enough to choke the breath out of a woman and sling her to the floor? I ain't never done that, sir. But you're strong enough to. I reckon so. Have you had your eye on her for a long time, hadn't you, boy? Nah, sir. I never looked at her. Then you were mighty polite to do all that chopping and hauling for her, weren't you, boy? I was just trying to help her out, sir. That was mighty generous of you. You had chores at home after your regular work, didn't you? Yes, sir. Why didn't you do them instead of Miss Ewell's? I done them both, sir. You must have been pretty busy. Why? Why what, sir? Why are you so anxious to do that woman's chores? Tom Robinson hesitated, searching for an answer. Looked like she didn't have nobody to help her. Like I said, with Mr. Ewell and seven children on the place. Well, I said it looked like they didn't ever help her none. 
You did all this chopping and work for, from sheer goodness, boy. I try to help her, I says. Mr. Gilmore smiled grimly at the jury. Well, you're a mighty good fella, it seems. Did all that for not one penny? Yes, sir. I felt right sorry for her. She seemed to try more than any of the rest of them. You felt sorry for her. You felt sorry for her? Mr. Gilmore seemed to raise, to rise to the ceiling. The witness realized his mistake and shifted uncomfortably in his chair, but the damage was done. Below us, nobody liked Tom Robinson's answer. Mr. Gilmore paused a long time to let that sink in. Now you went by the house as usual last November 21st, he said, and she asked you to come in and bust the tiff robe? No, sir. Do you deny that you went by the house? No, sir. She said she had something for me to do inside the house. She said she asked you to buff, bust up a chiffer robe. Is that right? No, sir. It ain't. Then what, you say she's lying, boy. Atticus was on his feet, but Tom Robinson didn't need him. I don't say she's lying, Mr. Gilmore. I say she has mistaken in her mind. To the next ten questions, as Mr. Robinson reviewed Mayella's version of events, the witness's steady answer was that she was mistaken in her mind. Didn't Mr. Ewell run you off the place, boy? No, sir. I don't think he did. Don't think? What you mean? I mean, I didn't stay long enough for him to run me off. You're very candid about this. Why'd you run off so fast? I says I was scared, sir. If you had a clear conscience, why were you scared? Like I says before, if it, it weren't safe for any nigga to be in, fix like that. But you weren't in a fit. You testified that you were resisting Miss Ewell. Why were you so scared that she'd hurt you? You ran, big buck like you. No, sir. It's I scared I'd be in court, just like I am now. Scared of arrest? Scared you'd have to face up to what you did? No, sir. Scared I'd have to face up to what I didn't do. Are you being impudent to me, boy? Nah, sir. I didn't go to be. This was as much as I heard Mr. Gilmore's cross-examination because Dim made me take Dill out. For some reason, Dill had started crying and couldn't stop. Quietly at first, and then his sobs were heard by several people in the balcony. Jim said if I didn't go with him, he'd make me, and Reverend Sykes said I'd better go, so I went. Dill seemed to be all right that day, nothing wrong with him, but I guess he hadn't fully recovered from running away. Ain't you feeling good, I asked, when we reached the bottom of the stairs. Dill tried to pull himself together as we ran down the south steps. Mr. Link Diaz was a lonely figure on the top step. Anything happening, Scout? 
he asked as we went by. Nah, sir, I answered over my shoulder. Dill here, he's sick. Come on out under the trees, I said. He got you, I spat. We chose the fattest live oak, and we sat under it. It, it was just him I couldn't under—I couldn't stand. Dill said, "Who, Tom? That old Mister Gilmore doing him that way, talking so hateful to him? Dill, that's his job. Why, if we didn't have prosecutors, well, we couldn't have defense attorneys, I reckon." Dill exhaled patiently. I know all that, Scout. It was the way he made me sick. Plain sick. He's supposed to act that way, Dill. He was cross. He didn't act that way when... Dill. Those were his own witnesses. Well, Mr. Finch didn't act like that way to Mayella and old man Ewell when he cross-examined them. The way he called that man boy all the time and sneered at him and looked around at the jury every time he answered. Well, Dill, after all, he is a Negro. I don't care one speck. It ain't right. Somehow, it ain't right to do that that way. Hasn't anybody got any business talking like that? It makes me sick. That's just Mr. Gilmore's way, Dill. He does them all that way. You've never seen him getting good down on one yet. Why, when, well, today, Mr. Gilmore seemed to me like he he was only half, he wasn't half trying. They do him all the time that way. Most lawyers, I mean. Mr. Finch doesn't. He's not an example, Dill. He's... I was trying to grope in my memory for a sharp phrase of Miss Maudie Atkinson, and I had it. He's the same in the courtroom as he is on the public streets. That's not what I mean, said Dill. I know what you mean, boy. A voice said a voice behind us. I thought it came from the tree trunk, but it belonged to Miss Dolphus Raymond. He peered around the trunk at us. You aren't thin hide. It it just makes you sick doesn't it? son, I got something that'll settle your stomach. As Mr. Dalphus Raymond was an evil man, I accepted his invitation reluctantly, but I followed Dill. Somehow I didn't think Atticus would like it if we became friendly with Mr. Raymond, and I knew Auntie Alexandra wouldn't. Here, he said, offering Dill a paper sack with straws in it. Take a good sip. It'll quieten you. Dill sucked on the straws, smiled, and pulled at length. <laughs> said Mr. Raymond, evidently taking delight in corrupting a child. Dill, you watched it out now, I warned. Dill released the straws and grinned. 
Scout, it ain't nothing but Coca-Cola. Mr. Raymond sat up against the tree trunk, said he'd been lying in the grass. You little folks won't tell me now, will you? It'll ruin my reputation if you did. You mean all you drink in that sack is Coca-Cola? Just plain Coca-Cola? Yes, ma'am, Mr. Raymond nodded. I liked to smell. It was leather, horses, cotton seed. He wore the only English riding boots I'd ever seen. That's all I drink most of the time. Then you just pretend? Ha I beg your pardon, sir. I caught myself. I didn't mean to be... Mr. Raymond chuckled, not at all offended. And I tried to frame a discreet question. Why do you do like that, you do? What? Oh, yeah, you mean why do I pretend? Well, it's very simple, he said. Some folks don't like the way I live. Now I could say the hell with them. I don't care if they don't like it. I do say, I don't care if they don't like it, right enough, but I don't say the hell with them, see? Dill and I both said, nah, sir. I try to give them a reason, you see. It helps folks if they can latch on to a reason. When I come to town, which is seldom, if I have to weave a little and drink out of this sack, folks can say, Dolphus Raymond's in the clutches of whiskey, and that's why he won't change his ways. He can't help himself. That's why he lives the way he does. That's not honest, Mr. Raymond, making yourself out better than you already. Mm-mm. It ain't honest, but it's mighty helpful to folks. Secretly. Miss Finch, I'm not much of a drinker, but you could see why they never, never understand why I live like I do, though that's the way I want to live. I had a feeling that I shouldn't be listening to this sinful man who had mixed children and didn't care who knew it, but he was fascinating. I had never encountered a being so deliberately perpetual fraud against himself. But why had he entrusted us with his deepest secret? I asked him why. Because you're children, and you can understand it, he said. And because I heard that one, he jerked his head at Dill. Things hadn't caught, hadn't caught up with that, that one's instinct yet. Let him get a few old, little older, and he won't get sick and cry. Maybe things strike him as being... Not quite right, but he won't cry, not when he gets a few years on him. Cry about what, Mr. Raymond? Dill's man manliness was beginning to assert himself. Cry out about the simple hell people give other people without even thinking. Cry about the hell white people give colored folks without even stopping to think they're people too. Atticus says cheating a colored man is ten times worse than cheating a white man, I muttered. Says the worst thing you can do. Mr. Raymond said, I don't reckon it's... Mr. Jean Louise, you don't know your pa's not a run-of-the-mill man. It'll take a few years for that to sink in. You haven't seen enough of the world yet. 
you haven't seen this town. All you got to do is step back inside that courthouse. Which reminded me that we were missing nearly all of Mr. Gilmore's cross-examination. I looked at the sun, which is dropping fast behind the store tops on the west side of the square. Between two fires, I couldn't decide if I wanted to jump into Mr. Raymond or on the 5th Judicial Circuit Court. Come on, Dill, I said. You alright now? Yeah. Glad to meet you, Mr. Raymond. Thanks for the drink. It was mildly setting. We raced back to the courthouse, up the steps, up the two flights of stairs, edged along the way of balcony rail. Reverend Sykes had saved our seats. The courtroom was still. And I wondered again where the babies were. Judge Taylor's cigar was a brown speck in the center of his mouth. Mr. Gilmore was writing on one of his yellow pads on the table, trying to outdo the court reporter, whose hand was jerkingly rap rapidly. Shoot, I muttered. We missed it. Atticus was halfway through his speech to the jury. He had evidently pulled some papers from his briefcase that rested that rested beside his chair because they were on the table. Tom Robinson was toying with him. Absence of any corroborative evidence, this man was indicted on a capital charge is now on trial for his life. I punched Jim. How long's he been at it? He just got over the evidence, Jim whispered. And we're going to win, Scout. I don't see how we can't. He's been at it about five minutes, and he's made it as plain and easy as well as I could explain it to you. You could have understood it. Did Mr. Gilmore... Shh, shh, shh. Nothing new. Just the usual. Hush now. We looked down again, and Atticus was speaking easily with the kind of detachment he used when he dictated a letter. He walked slowly up and down in front of the jury and the jury seemed to be attentive with their heads up, and they followed Atticus's route with what seemed to be appreciation. I guess it wasn't because Atticus was a thunderer. Atticus paused. Then he did something he didn't ordinarily do. He unhitched his watch and chain and placed them on the table, saying, with the court's permission, Judge Taylor nodded. Atticus did something I never saw him do before since in public. In private, he unbuttoned his vest. He unbuttoned his collar, loosened his tie, and took off his coat. He never loosened a scrap of clothing until he had undressed at bedtime. And, and to me and Jim, this was the equivalent of him standing before us, stark naked. We exchanged horrified glances. Atticus put his hands in his pocket, and he returned to the jury. I saw his gold collar button and the tips of his pen and pencil winking in the light. Gentlemen, he said. Jim and I again looked at each other. Atticus might have said, Scout, and his voice had lost all his aristity, its detachment, and he was talking to the jury as if they were folks on the post office corner.
gentlemen, he was saying, I shall be brief, but I would like you to I would like to use my remaining time with you to remind you that this case is not a difficult one. It requires no minute stifling of complicated facts, but it does require you to be sure, beyond a reasonable doubt, as the guilt of the defendant. To begin with, this case should have never come to this trial. This case is as simple as black and white. The state has not produced one iota of medical evidence to the effect that Tom Robinson is charged ever took place. It has relied instead upon the testimony of two witnesses whose evidence could not only be called into serious question on cross-examination, but have been flatly contradicted by the defendant. The defendant is not guilty, but someone in this courtroom is. I have nothing but pity in my heart for the chief witness for the state, but my pity does not extend as far to her putting a man's life at stake. She has done in her own effort to get rid of her own guilt. I say guilt, gentlemen, because it was guilt that motivated her. She has committed no crime. She is merely broken a rigid and time-honored code of our society, a code so severe that whoever breaks it is hounded from the, writs of, uh, hounded from the midst of it as unfit to live with. She is the victim of cruel poverty and ignorance, but I pity her. I do not pity her. She is white. She knew full well of the enormity of her offense, but because her desires were stronger than the code she was breaking, she persisted in breaking it. She persisted, and subsequent reaction is something that we all have known at one time or another. She did something every child is done. She tried to put the evidence of her offense away from her. But in this case, she is no child hiding stolen contraband. She struck out her own victim of necessity. She must put him away from her. He must be removed from her, her presence from this world. She must destroy the... Uh, uh, <laughs> she must put him away from her he must be removed from her presence from this world she must destroy the evidence of her offense what was the evidence of her offense Tom Robinson a human being she must put Tom Robinson away from her. Tom Robinson was her daily reminder of what she did. What did she do? She tempted a Negro. She was white, and she tempted a Negro. She did something in our society which is unspeakable. She kissed a black man. Not an old uncle, but a strong, young Negro man. No code mattered to her before she broke it, but it came crashing down on her afterwards. Her father saw it, and the defendant has testified as to his remarks. What did her father do? 
We don't know, but there is circumstantial evidence to indicate that Miss Mayella Ewell was beaten savagely by someone who led almost exclusively with his left. We do not know which part. We do not know in part what Mr. Ewell did. He did not. We do not know in what part Mr. Ewell did. He did what any God-fearing, preserving, respectable white man would do under the circumstances. He swore out a warrant, no doubt signing it with his left hand. And Tom Robinson now sits before you, having taken the oath with the only good hand he possesses, his right. And so, a quiet, respectable, humble negro who mitigated Dmitri to feel sorry for a white woman has been put his word against two white people. I need not remind you of their appearance and their conduct on the stand. You saw them for yourselves. The witnesses for the state, with the exception of the sheriff of Macomb County, have prevented themselves to you as gentlemen to this court in the cynical confidence that their testimony would not be doubted. Confident that you gentlemen would go along with them on the assumption, the evil assumption, that all Negroes lie, that all Negroes are basically immoral beings, and that all Negro men could not be trusted around their daughters. An assumption one associates with minds of their caliber. Which, gentlemen, we know in itself is a lie as black as Tom Robinson's skin. A lie I do not have to point out to you. You know the truth. And the truth is, some Negroes lie. Some Negroes are immoral. Some Negro men are not to be trusted around women. Black or white. But this truth applies to the human race and not to any particular races of men. There are not, there's not a person in this courtroom has, that has never told a lie, who has never done an immoral thing, and there is no man living who has ever looked upon a woman without desire. Atticus paused, took out his handkerchief. Then he took off his glasses, wiped them, and we saw another first. We had never seen him sweat. He was one of those men whose faces never perspired, but now it was shining tan. One more thing, gentlemen, before I quit. Thomas Jefferson once said that all men are created equal, a phrase the Yankees and the distaste of the executive branch of Washington are fond of hurling at. There is a tendency in this year of grace, 1935, for certain people to use this phrase out of context to satisfy all conditions. It's the most ridiculous example I can think of is that the people who run public education promote the stupid and the idle along with the industrious because all men 
are created equal. Educators will gravely tell you that children left behind suffer terrible feelings of inferiority. We all know men who are not created equal in the sense people would have us believe. Some people are smarter than others. Some people have more opportunity than others because they're born with it. Some men make more money than others. Some ladies make better cakes than others. Some people are born gifted beyond the normal scope of most men, but there is one way in this country in which all men are created equal. There is one human institution that makes a pauper the equal of a Rockefeller. The stupid man is equal as, an, as the Einstein, and the ignorant man is equal as any college president. That institution, gentlemen, is a court. It can be the Supreme Court of the United States or the humblest JP court in the land, but this or this honorable court in which you serve. Our courts have their faults, as does any human institution. But it is in this great country, our courts are the greatest levelers, and our courts are men men are created equal. I'm no idealist to believe firmly in the integrity of our courts and the jury system. That is no ideal for me. It is a living, a working reality. Gentlemen, a court is no better than each man of you sitting before me on this jury. A court is only as sound as its jury. And a jury is only as sound as the men who make it up. I am confident that with you gentlemen, you will review without passion the evidence that you have heard and come to a decision and restore this defendant back to his family. In the name of God, do your duty. Atticus's voice dropped and he turned away from the jury. He said something I did not catch. He said it more to himself than the court. I punched Jim. What'd he say? In the name of God, believe him. I think that's what he said. Dill suddenly reached over me and tugged at Jim. Look yonder. We followed his finger with sinking hearts. Calpurnia was making her way up the middle aisle and walking straight towards Atticus. I'm going to make this short and sweet. Chapter 20 of To Kill a Mockingbird is the one sole reason that I read banned books. It explains everything that is wrong with this country. But it also explains how we can fix it. So I want you guys to read, excuse me, listen to chapter 20 over and over until you get it. Signing off. Your storyteller.